Greetings again, everyone. My first time here for a couple of weeks, as you know, if you've been in regular attendance. We had a very fine meeting up in Kansas City and then down in Tulsa the following day, and last weekend I was over in Huntsville, Alabama, so I had the privilege of putting in about 14 hours in the cockpit of a small single-engine airplane in the last couple of weeks, which was kind of fun, after having been away from flying for too long. We had uh, fairly small groups, but it was pretty good to be there anyway. Up in uh, Kansas City, we had 185, very friendly and very attentive. I've written about that in the personal to come out in the newspaper, which uh, went to the typesetters, I think, the last little bit of copy yesterday, but it'll probably be up to three weeks before most people receive it. Then we had about 175 in Tulsa, and in both cases, we had a number of new people immediately begin attending services, I think six or eight in each place, so the uh, pastors of the respective churches were very pleased with all of that. I'm scheduled to go over to, let's see, trying to get my date straight here, I think it's the 15th of August on that Sabbath that we'll be over in, uh, trying to think of Atlanta, and then a couple of weeks later in Richmond, Virginia for a campaign over there, and I don't know whether there will be something in between now that might develop, but it's possible. So we're trying to uh, do a little bit more in the way of personal appearance campaigns to supplement the radio and TV. We've been making some telephone calls and canvassing some of the stations on the West Coast. We think we're already back on in Los Angeles and should begin there about the time the new season begins once again, perhaps on the same channel, Channel 22, where we were before because we took a summer hiatus temporarily just to save a little bit of money during the summer when People are not watching television quite as much, and a lot of vacations are underway and so on. And we're also very hopeful of a breakthrough on daily radio in the Los Angeles area. I don't know if that will materialize, but we will certainly hope so. Mr. Dart and I have been doing a little bit of preliminary work on the preaching schedule for the Feast of Tabernacles. We had a large number of people up in the Kansas City area that said they were going to be coming to Branson, so I would really expect that festival attendance is going to be up everywhere this year. Certainly hope so. As you know, we have three sites. One is going to be over in Gunnersville State Park down south of Huntsville on a huge big long lake, very beautiful area. The other is up in Branson, Missouri and the Ozarks. And again, there are beautiful lakes up there, Lake Taney Como and Table Rock and some others. And then also on beautiful Lake Tahoe out in California. We'll have those three sites. I became a little nostalgic when I was going through some of the uh, pictures that my wife and I were given by, I believe, my sister. I forget who had left those with her, but years and years ago, a man named Bill Homburger used to work for the college out in Pasadena, and he would attend the annual Feast of Tabernacles every year up in Belknap Springs in Oregon when I was just a very young teenager and he would meticulously take pictures of every individual or every family that was there. And he had given my sister, I guess because she had been the kind of family historian, she had a couple of drawers completely filled with pictures of the family going way back and so on. So in some way she came into possession of these. Bill died quite a few years ago, but he was a fixture around Ambassador College from 1946 and seven up until the time of his death, up in the 1960s, I believe. And I went through those albums the other day because I was doing an article for the newspaper about rejoicing in the Feast of Tabernacles, and I was going to write a kind of a thumbnail sketch of an entire personal history 
about the Feast of Tabernacles as nearly as I could recall all of my own experiences. And there are a few discrepancies in the truth about the early days of the so-called Philadelphia Church and its very close association and connection with the Church of God, Seventh Day. If you are interested in what some of those discrepancies might be, then I would advise you to write to Denver and to the headquarters of the Church of God, Seventh Day, and to obtain copies of actual letters written by my father requesting his credentials as late as 1935 in the autumn, about August or September of that year, and also to write to Mr. John Keyes and get his personal statement which included the fact that he was preaching in the Feast of Tabernacles every year clear up to 1945. And John Keyes is still, of course, a member of the Church of God Seventh Day. I well remember, I think it was 1939, now a lot of you are going to look around and, oh boy, I'm talking about ancient history, and of course to all of you that are quite young, that's true. But in those days, before my father began observing the annual Feast of Tabernacles, the Church of God Seventh-day Oregon Conference held an annual camp meeting. And it was always in the fall, roughly late August, early September, almost coincident with the dates of the feast. I don't think there was any symbolism there that it really was an attempt to observe a kind of a Feast of Tabernacles, but they always camped out. They would have a big central tent. It was as much a kind of an evangelistic meeting with other people invited, but it was more an evangelistic effort among the youth of the church. And every single camp meeting in the fall, it would have a number of 16-year-olds that would come forward. And you cannot believe the way they preached in those days. Maybe some of you have driven by one of these southeastern tent camp revivalist uh, setups out here, and you've seen revivals, and there's a little tent in a dusty lot in a small town in Arkansas, and out of curiosity, you have stopped and gone in. If you have ever done that, you've probably heard the kind of preaching, very likely Pentecostal or charismatic, that was very commonplace when I was a boy growing up. And I mean those ministers got right down into the nitty-gritty to calling names and pointing right to youths and teenagers and young people in their audience and would talk to the family members and say, now here's Bill, and we all know that Bill is a sinner. And you know, go on and on, and, and Bill, your family wants you to repent, and all your friends want you to repent, and won't you come up here and repent right now? You can't believe the kind of, of, of so-called preaching that these people went through. And that's embarrassing as all get out. You know, a lot of people would be tempted to walk up and grab that pastor and kind of shorten his tie and cut off his breath a little bit, choke him off momentarily and say, hey, just leave me alone, will you? I don't want you mentioning my name out of the pulpit anymore. Especially to one man that I remember, Bill Kahn, who was a kind of a wild youth that went riding back and forth in front of my house when I was a boy, standing on his head on his motorcycle with no hands, literally, I've seen him do it, to impress my sister. Anyway, under this kind of coercion on one of these camp meetings, both of my sisters, who were teenagers, were baptized. And they very well remember the people who were present, and this was clear up in the late 1930s, so it was years after the so-called beginning of the Philadelphia era of the church. Now, if you think that I'm saying that perhaps portions of certain books, like an autobiography or other thing, are a little bit off, uh, you are correct. Uh, they are off, perhaps failed memory or something, but they were both baptized, I believe, in the Santiam River, up there near Jefferson, Oregon somewhere, right by the bridge. 
And in those days, the entire congregation would gather by the shores of the river. And a baptismal ceremony was just like a religious ceremony. They would all sing a song, and here would come the candidates in their old faded dresses that they didn't mind getting wet, you know. And the pastor would stumble out there into the water about waist deep, and then the ladies or the men or the kids or anybody would be standing in a line waiting for him to baptize them. As soon as they're all baptized, they stumble ashore with the water draining off of them, and everybody is singing. I remember there was one about meeting by the shores of the river or something. Maybe Mr. Dart remembers that from his Baptist background, but it was something about on the shores of the river, or I will meet you on the other shore, or whatever. But anyway, they would come out, and it would be a prayer service and all of that, a lot of tears, then, of course, a lot of hugs. And right then and there, the entire congregation lined up, and each one of the newly converted people would go along. They would be given the so-called right hand of fellowship. Everybody would shake their hand, pat them on the back, welcome them into the congregation. You know, that tradition was continued clear up to the time of Big Sandy when they used to baptize people in a little pond down below the old Redwood building en masse, a large numbers of them, and the whole congregation gathering around. Well, I began reminiscing about that and about the grounds up here at Big Sandy. The reason I did, and I put a little bit of the uh, announcements in the personal that were covered in newspapers all over this region a couple of weeks ago about some recent firings up in Big Sandy. One of them that particularly incensed me was the enforced retirement of my brother-in-law, Mr. Buck Hammer. My father came through Big Sandy now exactly three weeks ago last night, I believe it was, and really tongue-lashed those people pretty good up there. First he started out by tongue-lashing them about being late. Of course, my dad hasn't the faintest conception that if he sends out an edict for everybody to be there from Weatherford to Lufkin to Shreveport and so on, that families at work have got to go home and maybe get the grease off one of their nails at 5 o'clock and chuck the kids in a station wagon and go roaring down a road at 65 or 70 to get there by 7.30 in the evening. But anyway, there were dozens of people still streaming in, and my father was just giving them what for. Uh, God starts things on time, and we're going to start things on time here after this and this and that. So it went from that to an attack on makeup, an attack on smoking, and so on. Then afterwards, he threatened Leon Walker with closure of the college. Stuck his finger in his face in the hallway out of the back and said, I can close this college. Leon took straight to bed with a gastrointestinal difficulty. And the last I heard, he was in the hospital here in Tyler. Uh, probably caused a flare-up of what I understand to be a problem that he's had for a long time. But knowing what trauma can do to your body, having gone through that myself, I would suspect that uh, being threatened with closure of the college and then two days later hearing that he'd been fired from his job may or may not have had a little bit to do with whatever was going on inside his viscera. But then Ellis Laravia was left behind, and the following day he fired John Robinson, no reason given, and then they fired Leon Walker, and then they fired Ron Kelly. There were no reasons given at all. The newspapers with whom I discussed the entire situation uh, we're told by Laravia, just minor interior routine administrative changes. Uh, the truth of the matter is they were punitive in nature, but the reasons for the punitive action were not given. Well, you know, I began thinking about the first time I had ever met Buck Hammer, and uh, Papa Hammer, as we called him. I had driven my father over to East Texas in the summer of 1952. I was just newly out of the Navy, and I was 
waiting for a job over in Hollywood. I had applied for a job in a couple of places, but I didn't have a job as yet. I was still kind of knocking around on the money that they'd given me when I was mustered out of the Navy in May, about May 14th of that year. So it was in either July or whatever that my dad wanted to come all the way over to East Texas. They had determined that the mailing list of the church at that time was pretty much centrally, you know, heavily represented by the southeastern United States because for years we had been on the big Mexican radio stations of XEG, XERB, XELO, and XEDM and had been on virtually no other American stations except two or three way out on the west coast. And the geographical center of the distribution of the mailing list was pretty well over here in East Texas. Well, the preceding spring, Herman Hay, and I have pictures of these meetings coming up in the next newspaper, had come over to the Hammer home just east of Gladewater for the Passover. And quite a number of families had shown up from all over Texas. And then that following autumn, they had discovered a resort down in the mountains near Clear Lake, north of San Francisco in California, called Siegler Springs. Now, the year previous to that, several families from Texas, including the David Robinson family and the Hammer family, and I don't know if the Reese family went to Belknap. Your first feast, I think, was Siegler. But the Reese family came the following year, their first festival, and I have pictures, and you're going to see a picture of them the way they looked in 1952, with their daughter Cecilia standing down about here, uh, coming up in the next newspaper, was out at Siegler Springs. Well... I drove my dad all over this country. We went over to Marshall. There was an old abandoned uh, two-story building over there with a skating rink in it and old ancient motels that dated back to the way they did things in the 20s and 30s and a farm pond and so on, a, a kind of an abandoned resort. And we looked over every kind of a building and every kind of property. And my father was thinking about beginning a feast site of some sort over here in East Texas as a final last ditch maybe or possibility the Hammers wanted him to take a look at a piece of property they had about two miles east of Big Sandy so just before we were to leave and to go back we drove over there now in the meantime uh, Shirley Hammer had been down in Houston working with her older sister and she had come home uh, Bob Hammer and I had been palling around together, and Bob invited me to his wedding, and he married Melba, and I went up there, and that's the first time I met Shirley. She was in attendance at Bob's wedding, somewhere up around Gilmer, I don't know exactly where, or Dangerfield. And so the following couple of days, I had asked Cheryl for a date, and she was in the car when uh, I drove my father and her father out here to the grounds at Big Sandy, and here was an absolute jungle, a thicket, a brush, and you will see the pictures of Popo Hammer standing in all of that brush uh, in the next newspaper. And you'll see pictures of Cheryl and I standing on the front walk before the Hammer's home somewhere late in the summer of 1952. I couldn't believe all the pictures that were in there. So I did this entire little bit of a history as I'm telling you about it in thumbnail sketch in an article coming up in the newspaper. And I'll wait and save a lot of this for you to read it there. But I found it fascinating as I began thinking back that my father began to get the people to send in donations to build that original Redwood Tabernacle building. The following spring in 1952, the Passover was held, and just the first part of the shell was totally open on both sides and a wind whistling through in the early spring when it was still cold. Uh, that fall, 
the Feast of Tabernacles was held there, and where the attendance had been 400 in Siegler Springs the year before, the first year it was ever held over here, it went to 600, just like that. The following year it doubled and went to 1,200. The following year it was 2,400. The next year it was 4,000. The following year 6,000. And the year after that 8,000. And that brings us all the way up to 1960 when we began to have to have the feast out in Squaw Valley, which I went up and looked over, and 61 when I went down and we found Jekyll Island and we expanded to there, and it just exploded. And it's just unbelievable of how all of that started. I well remember how Buck had uh, a bulldozer and some dump trucks and some pickups and some other equipment and, and machinery and so on, and he donated not only the original property but all that equipment to the work as well. I remember then how we had gone up to a college up the other side of Nashville and the people up there had asked my father to come up. They were thinking of selling it to Ambassador College and we began to realize the need of a second college. We looked it over and we began to realize all the difficulties and how much it would cost to try to refurbish that and so on. And so Buck and I got our heads together and said, look, here's this church property. Here are all these little metal booths. Here's this great big metal building that would provide a field house, gymnasium, etc. All these offices. The lake was Buck's idea. He asked me about it. I said, go to it. Let's build the lake. It was his idea. He even did a lot of the work himself. The extension of the lake was Buck's idea. Again, he did a lot of the work himself, sitting on the bulldozers and managing the grounds crews. Believe it or not, between the two of us, practically every road, even going around trees, where they are, the digging of the wells, the location of the buildings, obtaining the contractor, looking over the plans, deciding which house went on which site, was Mr. Buckhammer and myself for all of those years. And I don't know why, but it just kind of got to me, I guess, when I heard that he was forced into retirement and that he and his wife, Jean, are being forced out of their home that they have lived in for 19 solid years on, that, on those grounds when he has tried for years and years to buy that house, could have easily done so, and in my opinion should have at the very least have been given the deed to that property after all of these many, many years as a lifetime retirement or bonus or something, but instead now just goodbye and that's the end of that. And I couldn't help it. I just had to kind of cover very, very briefly, not even in as much detail as I am here about what happened to Buck, but to kind of put it in as a matter of the news because it was covered in the newspapers here. It's kind of a, a sad chapter in a way. I remember so well when that original home was built uh, for Mr. and Mrs. Roy Hammer. And I remember so very well the many weeks in which Papa Hammer lay there slowly dying of cancer. And I remember then when... Uh, Mrs. Hammer was moved out and the home was taken over by my father, who never stayed there more than one day every two years. And it was left vacant in spite of all of my attempts to turn it into a, a central office for the executive offices of the college. At one time we had proposed that perhaps it could become the home economics department. At another occasion we proposed perhaps it could become the music department, but it was always just left empty. And uh, now it was being lived in by Mr. Leon Walker, who of course is being moved out to Pasadena. Anyway, it's, it's a kind of a closing of a chapter that certainly has a great deal to do with my life and my background, and if you're a long-time member in the church, probably with yours. I know that uh, thousands of people from South Texas, Dallas and Fort Worth, from Shreveport, and all over have put countless tens of thousands of back-breaking sweat and labor 
into the development of those grounds and those properties over there, not to say that they've contributed tens of thousands of dollars of their money. So it's all, in a sense, very sad. I wanted to bring you up to date on a little bit about that, though. And by the way, there's going to be other, another article in the current newspaper, which is merely a slightly shortened article from the Systematic Theology Project on the annual Holy Days. In a little editor's note, you will notice that this article, uh, the entire book, of course, Systematic Theology Project, was banished as being, quote, liberal, end quote, by the other church. You read this article very carefully, and you will see how strongly it supports the annual Holy Days. You might be shaking your head in perplexity, wondering, what in the world is liberal about this article? But you be the judge of that. And uh, in the next issue, we'll have another couple of articles along similar lines. So I think this will be a fascinating issue. It'll have many, many pictures, including pictures of the Hammer family way back when Tony Lee was their only child, Buck and Jean, and she was only about this tall before any of the others were even born. And it was a very nostalgic week for me to be wading through these old albums and seeing these pictures I had never seen in years of, of these people way, way back when. Let's turn to the second chapter of the book of Hebrews, and I want to deal with something that is basic to life, to why we are here, why we're on the earth, and what this human experience is all about today. In Hebrews, the second chapter is the place where we are asked the question, what is man, and really why does God bother with him one way or the other? I'll read up to that. It says, beginning in verse Three, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, meaning the apostles who heard Christ. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with different miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the ages or the world to come whereof we speak. Now, he's talking about the most basic questions that would occur to any human being. What's it all about? Who made God? Who made man? What is God? What is man? And why is man here and on the earth? I was talking to a young man who was not a member of the church. His wife is not a member of the church, but his father is. One of the first questions he asked me was, well, all right, you say God created the world and He created the universe and He created man. But who created God? Where did God come from? These basic questions have perplexed people, philosophers, I suppose, for as long as there has been a human being on the earth to reason and to ponder and to ask questions about origins. Now, suppose you answered that question by saying, well, super God created God. What's your next question? Where did super God come from? Well, super, super God created super God who created God. Yeah, but where did you get super, super God? In other words, you're asking me a question that is unanswerable because that computer inside our heads, which we call a brain, is a computer which is capable of infinite thought encased in a finite skull and existing in a finite world. It is capable of asking infinite questions, questions that are otherworldly, questions of a spiritual nature. 
questions about causes and origins, questions that deal with eternity, but yet we exist in a world where we have certain mechanistic functions in our bodies that relate to a world by which we are able to measure, to judge, to weigh, to taste, to see, to hear, think, feel, taste, touch, evaluate, and to induct into our minds, into these computers of ours, all of these various experiences in life that make us act and react the way we do. As a little child, the teachers begin to deal with how big is big, and how far is far, and what is a time, and how do you read a watch. And they show us pictures of elephants and mice, and they t tell us what is an inch, and what is a meter, and what is a yard, or a rod. They used to when I was in the school in the 1930s, and they had different measurements then that were used in agriculture than even they have today. But they deal in the metric system, or in inches, and yards, and miles, and feet, and so on. Now inside your inner ear is a fluid, and so architects do not basically design doors that go like in S-curves and all sorts of weird shapes because we want things that are plumb, that are straight up and down. God has provided us with a platform earth on which there is a center which is of a very, very extremely hot core, apparently a heavy molten metal, and which has a certain gravitational field. That gravity pulls on us, and it's very faithful, and it absolutely, inexorably works every single day. So our builders are very modern, whether they're building a skyscraper in New York City that looks like it's standing on wobbly legs and so very narrow and yet so tall, and you wonder why a strong wind doesn't blow it down. And they use a device which is very, very uh, scientifically designed. It's a heavy weight on a piece of string. And once it settles down, that plumb tells them exactly when the line of that steel girder or the side of that building or the joists beneath or behind the door are exactly straight because it has to do with gravity. My eye always tells me when a painting is not hanging straight on a wall. For some reason, my computer is programmed by my inner ear and by all the books I've read and by the architects who build buildings to know what is up and what is down, and what is at right angles, and what isn't. And so, as I think about this mechanistic piece of flesh that I am, of the computer that is inside my brain, of why I have these various functional organs that I do, why my blood has a certain pressure that can be measured, and how long is this span of time that has been allotted me, which is now growing shorter every single year, it causes a little bit of pause. It makes me look at myself and think of that time when I'm going to join my brother Dick, my mother Loma Armstrong, my father-in-law Roy Hammer, my brother-in-law Dick Hammer, and other people who are moldering in their graves. And I look at myself and I say, Self, you are impermanent. You are temporary. You are very, very fragile. And you're not always going to be here. What lies beyond? Now, I believe that I know what lies beyond, but I still like to deal with those questions because inevitably every time I talk to someone about religion, I find out that the questions they are dealing with are not really questions like, do I need to keep the holy days or do I need to tithe or is it Saturday or Sunday? But the questions they deal with are questions of origins and questions of destiny, questions of the future. The questions these people asked at dinner the other night in Huntsville 
had to do with judgment, with hell or heaven, do you burn forever or do you go to heaven, questions about the soul and questions about eternity. And really, I was kind of pleased to see that that was so. Because they didn't dwell on the little picky questions the way a lot of religious hobbyists do. They dwelt with the really big questions. And that's exactly what the Bible deals with. It says here, But one in a certain place testified, saying, that was David in Psalm 8, 4-6, What is man that you are mindful of him, that a creator being out here in the universe, maybe very much closer than we think, but a being of some sort, that does live and does exist and does have essence or shape, who exists in a dimension of which we know little, if anything. Or the Son of Man, that you visit Him, that you pay any attention to Him. You have made Him a little lower than the angels. I don't know that I've ever consciously seen an angel. I doubt it. But there have been many men who have. And I want to tell you an experience of a lady who saw someone... Uh, who was not at all like we might have imagined, and perhaps one of the greatest deceptions of all has to do with the snake entwined around the tree and the apple. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. Now, there is something glorious and honorable about we human beings. There is something that is glorious and honorable about what man has been able to accomplish. Not everything man has done is bad or wrong, as you look back through history at the seven wonders of the ancient world, whether it is the hanging gardens and the walls of Babylon, whether it is the Sphinx and the great pyramid of Cheops, whether it is some of the great buildings in Rome or other great ruins that we can see, whether it is the aqueducts of Rome that went all across Europe and North Africa and the Middle East, whether it is some of the great irrigation canals of some of the famous races of the Incas, the Aztecs, and others in Central and South America, man has been able to accomplish enormous things. Footprints on the moon, an American flag held stiffly out by aluminum foil on the surface of that moon that we look at every single night. The space shuttle that performs flawlessly, that is absolutely mind-boggling and inspirational to watch it soar into space and to see a perfect landing every time. You keep thinking something is going to go wrong. This time they're going to goof, they're going to crash, or they're going to burn up on takeoff, but it's flawless each time. Some of you in this room may never have been to New York City. You may never have been to the top of the trade uh, towers or perhaps up on the top of the oldest tall building, which is no longer the tallest, the Empire State, and look down on those buildings beneath and at Central Park. Some of you here may not have flown in a 747. But as you look around at all that man has done, at all of technology, and realize that even living human beings have lived from the time of the Wright brothers and Kitty Hawk, and realize that it's all happened in approximately 50 years that men have come from old rag-wing Jennies, World War I trainers, to the space shuttle and civilians lining up to get tickets to actually go into orbit and come back. Then you realize how absolutely rapidly it has all developed from the time of the invention of the Gatling gun, and just previous to World War I, the German-made machine gun with its liquid-cooled barrel 
to the time now of Gatling guns and helicopter gunships capable of spewing out thousands of rounds per hour to laser guns which are capable of shooting down satellites in outer space to hydrogen bombs which require an atomic bomb to even strike the match to ignite a fusionable bomb which can literally create explosive force out of matter itself and can cause solid rock to explode all of this within so few years you would put all things in subjection under his feet man has harnessed not only whales of the sea but man has harnessed the atom for in that he put in subjection put all in subjection under him he left nothing that is not put under him now you have a little bit of a, a correction or let's say a little escape clause here in the Bible but now for right now temporarily we see not yet all things put under him not yet but that does say that in a future time all things will be put under him this creature walking around on the earth known as man who is only a little lower than the angels. Do you realize that angelic life is only a comparatively small step above human life in comparison with spirit life, which of course at its apex we find God. Verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Now, the other night when we were talking, we got right down to those ultimate questions. Questions like, what are we going to be doing for all eternity? And one scripture the man actually knew or had heard about, perhaps by attending church or hearing his dad before was, he said, doesn't the Bible say that we're actually going to judge angels? And I said, yes, it does. 1 Corinthians 6. Well, how are you going to do that? I mean, what has an angel done? Does that mean we're going to judge all the good angels? And you know, I, I said, I really can't answer that. I don't know. I don't really think there is such a thing as a lazy angel. I don't know whether some angels do better jobs than others, so I have always assumed that that means we're going to judge bad angels, meaning demons. But it seems like their judgment or their destiny has already been made, and I was kind of puzzled myself. Here was a young man who was asking me one puzzling question after another that just challenged the farthest reaches of my philosophical concepts way out into outer space about what would be happening in 2932 in autumn of that year if there was an autumn on the earth and we were sitting there and speculating we even got to the point to where we said what if just to really be weird for a minute in our thinking our God is, is really the only God of which we can know because He created us in this particular part of the universe. But that there are other universes, and there are other, forgive me for saying so if I'm wrong because we were just speculating about the macrocosm, gods or beings. And that our God is like the good God, and way out there is Trog or Tron or whatever he is, you know. And that our God has this plan, and this plan is like the batting of an eyelash so far as the way these beings count time. But he is over here in this part of the universe, his universe, and he's recreating himself. And he's reproducing giant forces. And someday these forces are going to come in collision with, and then my mind says, no, that can't be, that isn't right, that can't be true. 
And it reminded me of the day back in college when a young college student named John Hill used to devour science fiction novels. And uh, he would come up with some of these weird speculations, like every time you kicked over a rock, you were destroying a universe of little beings living underneath the dust down there, and uh, so on. They'd been there for 10,000 years, and 1,600 of their prophets had said that exactly on this day, 12.30 in the afternoon, <laughs> along a big giant was going to come and kick over the universe with a size 9 uh, uh, shoe, you know. And, and his mind would just go in all these bizarre directions, and John would come up with these concepts that would just boggle my mind. And I couldn't get a handle on what John was saying. But you know, here was someone that is not a member of this church at all, is not converted, knows very little about the Bible, but he was just punching holes on out into outer space and out into eternity, asking all these challenging questions that I was hard put to answer in some cases. Now let's take a look at what this is saying. We see... Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom or through whom, because he is the creating agent, if we read in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, in verse 10, Thou, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the works of thy hands, he is the very one who was the creator God who made the universe and then came down, was made in the human form and shape, died for his own creation, and eventually is going to be recreating and is doing so even now, every single day and week and month, recreating his own character, his own personality, and eventually will recreate according to his own image, spiritual essence, and recreate and enlarge his own family in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, I understand the desire of every family, every, every father especially, to have a son. If you discount the horrifying conditions in the world in which we live today, the economy, crime, childhood diseases, all the other bad things about it, and just look at your normal, maybe we could even say ideal situation. Uh, a family in a good part of the southwestern United States or whatever with reasonably good health, with a good job, with bright prospects for the future. It is so normal to want to marry, as we say, to settle down and to raise a family and to have children. And there is so, uh, so great a thrill and so deeply rewarding and fulfilling an experience in seeing your own child born sharing that moment with a wife, honey, it's a boy, or honey, it's a girl, watching this little squalling, kicking, struggling infant gradually growing and developing, nurturing, nursing it, and caring for it, and crying over it when it is sick, and watching it grow and develop to the time when it is first able to say, da-da, or whatever, and take its first little stumbling step towards you. There is nothing greater, nothing more rewarding, nothing more satisfying. And we, we start out by looking at them so carefully in their crib when they're born. And as they grow up, we watch them all the way along, even up into teenage and in their late 20s. And we see elements of ourselves and every little success, every little right step in the right direction, every little step forward, we exult. We're just absolutely tickled to death. We say, isn't that marvelous when great things, when good things happen to our children? You know, when you have a son, you want to bring that son unto good things, unto long, healthy, and happy life. 
to an absence of all the bad things. And when the sons get, you know, do bad things, which I certainly did and caused my dad a lot of heartache, I'm sure, when I was a young kid, when they do things that hurt them or that could even do a lot worse and even take their lives, as has happened in so many families, well, it just destroys you. You can hardly stand it. It just tears you apart. My father had to suffer the loss of his firstborn son. And I guess it nearly killed him. It must have been a horrible thing. And the only way I can imagine what that would be like would be like saying the phone rang some night and perish the thought, why go into it? You know, something had happened to one of mine. So I'm trying to get a handle here on what does it mean to Jesus Christ of Nazareth and to God, the Father of mankind, to bring many sons unto glory... And it goes on to say, both he that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, I've been in a series of programs in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and notice verse 7 for a moment. Revelation 21 and verse 7. He that overcometh, there are several statements like that in the book of Revelation. One is in Revelation 2.26, to him that overcometh will I grant power over the nations. One is Revelation 3.21, to him that overcometh, he will sit on my throne as I overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Verse 7, Revelation 21, he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, now you know there are a lot of people who do categorize sins, and I've been talking about this a good deal lately, and I want to touch on it again briefly. The unbelieving and the abominable. It says in James, you say that you believe God is one or that there is one God. Well, you do well. The demons also believe and they tremble. It says the fearful. Now, you tend to fear what you do not understand. Many people fear flying because they do not understand aerodynamics. What keeps an aircraft in the air? People fear the dark. They fear tight little places and, and are claustrophobic. They fear other races or other tongues or what have you. They fear strange places. There are many, many phobias that people become addicted to. But you know, one of the strangest places in the world, it would seem, for a person to feel repeatedly, repetitiously, nothing but fear, would be a church service. And when we get letters, as we do, seemingly so often, which are telling us that the worst day of the week is the Sabbath, and the people find themselves dreading the experience of going to church. And when they come away from it, they're trembling and, and they're afraid. And they're doubting their salvation. They're wondering if they're going to make it continually. And it's almost like, I guess, living in a void. You're never able to really plant your feet squarely on something that is firmly anchored and to say, here I stand, I know where I stand, I know where I'm going, I know that the ultimate question, the big question is already settled, but it's like maybe it will be if, and hopefully if I do this and if I do that and if I keep in the good graces of so-and-so, that I will eventually make it. There are two scriptures that are very, very similar in this regard. Right here in Revelation 21, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And then notice the catalog or the various types of sins that are not going to be in the kingdom of God will be thrown out. Not only the horrible murderers and whoremongers, sorcerers and idolaters and some of the so-called worst sins of all, taking human life, being a whoremonger, sorcery, bowing before an idol and so on. But what about liars? What about people who just lie? 
They just tell it the way it isn't. They make false statements to newspapers. They just lie. Is that bad? Well, you judge for yourself. And what about those who are fearful or those who are the merchants of fear and who are causing other people to fear? Let's go back to the book of Romans, the 8th chapter. And again, remember that Romans, the 8th chapter, is like a little Bible within a Bible. It's almost like the whole plan of God wrapped up in one chapter of the Bible. A lot of you are very familiar with this chapter, but I think it is very important to read this portion. It says in verse 13, if you live after the flesh, now that means live the way everybody else is doing according to carnal dictates of the mind and according to your own human conscience and your various ideas, you shall die. we got a graveyard right across the street from us, and every now and then the cars will come and they'll have a whole big bank of flowers like they did last Wednesday or whatever, and they'll put someone in there. But if you, through the Spirit, do put to death, meaning really just squelch in yourself, not embarrass, the deeds of the body, wrong deeds, not good deeds, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Should the church, should the ministry be imposing upon you the spirit, the feeling, and the attitude of bondage. I've covered this a good deal lately, and it's a theme that I'm beginning to try to really instill in the Church of God International. You have not received, let's just put it that way, in the Church of God, in which we have had to incorporate in the appellative, which is merely a convenience for the sake of state government and nothing more important than that, the name of the church is the Church of God. You in the Church of God have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. You are not being gathered in an organized group in order to inculcate into your mind terror, fear, doubt, apprehension, nervousness, worrying about your salvation. But, on the other hand, you have received the spirit of adoption. I was having a discussion with a man who had done a great deal of research on this particular passage. I have looked this up as well. And that's why it says in the margin, sonship. The Greek word is a different word than exists in our language. And it actually has to do with like surrogate begettal. It is almost like it is somewhere in between adoption and what that word means to you, like legal adoption, and actual sonship, meaning your own flesh and blood. But it's taking another person and actually making that person your own flesh and blood. It is a Greek word that means more than just legal adoption. It means sonship, whereby we cry, Abba, the Hebrew word for father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then notice this, heirs. Now, I remember way back years ago, there were two different programs on TV. One of them was called The Millionaire, and another one I think even predated that on radio called Missing Heirs. And my recollection about Missing Heirs way back in the 30s and the early 40s was that there literally were missing heirs who were found and that they would tell this story. And I remember one radio program, maybe this was a nationwide organization to which people wrote, but they would actually search for people who did have inheritances that were due them, and they would try to discover where they were. Perhaps years had gone by and people move away and families get scattered and they become lost or they change their identity or whatever. 
And they would broadcast almost like on the old, old, old FBI program on radio many years ago. They would broadcast a description of public enemy number one. And they would say, if you see this person, call your nearest FBI office and so on. He's armed and dangerous. Maybe some of you remember in the early days of radio programs of that nature. And they would tell these people, you've inherited a farm or you've inherited a certain amount of money or whatever. Every now and then you'll read a sensational case in a newspaper where long lost brothers or sisters, one lived in Russia and one in this country, are reunited, or identical twins who were adopted and they're reunited, or someone is discovered who didn't even know he had a rich uncle who died and he's inherited an enormous amount of money. Now, when my father dies, he is going to leave me nothing. In the first place, he does not have an estate. He's never accumulated a private estate. But there are some things he has that I wish I could get my hands on. And I don't mean greedily or with avarice. In his basement in Pasadena are boxes and boxes of ancient old family things, including a lot of old, old pictures that go way back to when I was a little tiny boy, and even pictures of him and the family coming out from Iowa to Oregon with the old extra tires strapped on the old 1924 touring car they had, and things of that nature that I would just like to have as a matter of a family member. My dad doesn't have a gun collection, never owned a gun in his life. He doesn't have any clothes that would fit me. He doesn't have anything else that he owns that I want. But it would be nice to at least have access to some of those personal effects that belong to my mom or to him, and maybe to look through them and share them with my sisters and to have those. But you know, if my father had been Hewlett C. Merritt, and at probate I were sitting there nervously, and then suddenly they said, your father has left you his entire estate. I would realize that he had left me something like 147 corporations, the largest fruit orchards in California, the heaviest block of stock in U.S. steel, the entire physical facilities of what is today Ambassador Hall, other big homes in the East Coast and even overseas, and that I was instantly worth $200 million. Now, we read over that very, very quickly back there in Revelation 21 and verse 7. But when it says to you in the Bible, the Word of God, He that overcometh will inherit all things. What does that really mean to you? Does that mean you inherit part of whatever are defined in the Bible as things? Do you inherit one one billionth, because there might be 999,999,999, to share it all with you? Or do you inherit all things? Now, if you could be in the proverbial story, you know, like the, the fairy godmother, or like the genie in the lamp, or like uh, Mother Goose, or like the, the, the giant up in the castle in the sky, whoever the fabled character is out of mythology, and you meet this person, and this person says, all right, I will give you one wish. You may have one wish. So many stories on that old fable. And people always make the wrong wish. You've heard some very funny stories about Cinderella and on and on and on. But uh, what would your wish be? How would you voice that one wish? I, I think it's voiced in a song. It's a very exciting song. It was very, very popular about a year ago or longer about how I want to live forever. And it goes on and on and on. I want to live forever. You know, a lot of you have heard that. It's a real peppy song. I dig that. I understand that. 
because I'm a person that has a great deal of zest for life. I'm just a glutton for life. I love it. Every year, I just go crazy. Right now, I'm looking through hand-loading catalogs. I got me a big, thick catalog. I'm looking to get me a press and a die because, see, I got hundreds of spent uh, brass out there for every caliber known to man, nearly. And I decided that if I'll just go out and, and uh, load my own shells now, I can actually save money. And I was kind of joking with Benny. If I'd go out and shoot two boxes a week, I could pay for that thing in a year. And it's kind of crazy, you know. It's like saying, uh, if I go out and spend all this money, it's going to pay me to get my own loading equipment. So I'm trying to convince my wife that really I'm going to save money if I go out in my garage and I put, put up my loading equipment and I can actually buy all the... I told her, you know, I can buy Spear and Barnes and Hornaday bullets and I can get this hydrogen powder. And about 700... Uh, well, I could load maybe six boxes per pound. And, oh, man, I mean, I can just save all kinds of money. Did you know that 60 grains of 4831 will give you 3,160 feet per second? behind a Sierra boat tail 130 grain bullet in a 270 and some of you guys who are loaders know exactly that I just hit it right on didn't I that's a hot load boy oh I want to do that so I'm looking right now toward the idea of going up ahead of time in Colorado and backpacking all over the mountains about 10 11,000 feet looking all over where I'm going to go hunting then go back this fall and go hunting now, Billie Jean and Eric just got back from Colorado. They helped with all of the girls up there, and Guy was up there, and all of them, and stomping around the mountains in Colorado. After the service is over, just ask them where they'd like to spend eternity. Now then, wait a minute. What are the alternatives? You know, what are the alternatives? How many times have you been in a mansion? I've been in several mansions. Every now and then a mansion would come on the market near us in Southern California. One time we went into a mansion... And I was so dumbfounded at what was in there. Well, it was almost like a haunted house. And this old creepy guy, he was almost ready to die, and he was an ancient old Russian that had actually been in the Russian Navy and had come over here and emigrated to the United States after World War I. And he had lived in this family's home and that had been his, and his wife had died, and all of his kids had died or moved away or whatever. Here he was up in his 80s, and he lived in this old house. He'd lived there all of his life. And I saw, I guess it had to be the world's unique sauna bath. He opened up with an old rusty key, one of these upstairs rooms. You walked in, and the room had been closed for over 40 years. It had not been opened once in 40 years. I mean, the dust was just incredibly thick. There was no oxygen in the room. We had to open up a window, you know, and, and leave the door open. You could hardly breathe, and it was so stifling, and it was hot. And over in one end was this cabinet, and I could not believe it. It was a great big cabinet with a swinging door, and it had hundreds and hundreds of 100-watt incandescent light bulbs in it and a hole for your head. And literally, way back, I guess in the 20s or 30s, when that house was built, somebody had built a cabinet with hundreds of electric light bulbs, and you got in there and closed it and hit the switch, and all the light bulbs came on. You couldn't see the light. And you're sitting there just baking, and it was an original sauna bath. And it was amazing. And it was a shower I'll never forget, too that had little tiny tubes that completely encircled the entire body, and you got in, turned the water on, and it hit you from all sides and every angle at once, you know, in that same house. And it was fascinating. Well, some of those old mansions in Pasadena were really ugly, but now I'm going to talk about a beautiful mansion. Let's talk about the mansion that the Baptists all want to go to. Obviously, when you're in heaven, you've got to have equality. 
I mean, everybody, nobody is going to be in a pecking order, are they? I mean, are the Methodists going to have to live in lesser mansions and the Baptists better ones? Well, you'd have wars in heaven. You'd have riots immediately and demonstrations about getting the best mansion. All right, gold streets. We know that it says something about gold streets. Are people literally going to live in mansions? I've never sat and listened to anyone explain all about what it's going to be like in heaven after the first thousand years or the second thousand years. But in the Bible, when I try to explain to someone what it's going to be like after the first thousand years, I find myself getting all caught up in the subject. It seems to me there is so much to do and so much to talk about and so much to think about for the future, there's just no comparison. Can you imagine anything duller than looking at nothing but gold all day long? I mean, if all the streets were paved of gold, you'd be... You'd, oh, I wish I could see a piece of rock. You know, just an old chunk of rock. Maybe some granite or something like that. I bet you'd be wearing granite around your neck. You'd be wearing granite in your rings. And you'd have granite earrings and granite necklaces because they'd be so rare and they'd be beautiful. They'd have all kind of little gray flecks in them and gold, just the same color all the time. When it says in the Bible that we're going to inherit all things, it means exactly what it says. Notice verse 17 in Romans 8 again. No church on the face of this earth understands this truth save God's true church. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. Now, what does God own? How long has it been since you picked up an encyclopedia and looked up the article universe, or Betelgeuse, or Orion, or Earth, or Sun, or Moon, or stars, or space, or any other comparable document? In a simple encyclopedia like World Book that is graphically illustrated at about the high school or junior college level, and looked up about astronomy. Now, if you were as, as amazed and as, as, as bedazzled as I was with some of the pictures that came back from the Voyager flyby of Saturn, of those rings, and how they discovered far more than they ever knew existed, and of pictures of the moons of some of these great planets out there. Actual close-up pictures, it appeared to be, of the Venusian atmosphere and of Mars and Jupiter and Venus. It's fascinating, just unbelievable, and yet these are planets that are captured by the gravitational field of our own sun, and that's only a dwarf among billions of them, and there's just no telling what is out there. Space is a concept that I hate to even preach about because it boggles your mind and I lose you very quickly because I lose myself. And I'm wandering around out there not even knowing what I'm talking about after I get beyond the speed of light and about 10 billion parsecs out into the other side of the black hole of the universe anyway. So why talk about it? But if God owns all of that, and if God Almighty says that I have life self-inherent within myself, if God is like a never-ending perpetual motion machine of energy and of life, who has been forever, and your mind cannot cope with that, and who will be forever, all right, let's put it to you this way. What if I said, by very diligent adherence to certain laws and principles, and maybe some sacrifice and this and that, you could have three lifetimes... Now we're, we're down here in mundane principles that we can understand. And you could live to be 300 years old, but we would freeze you at whatever age you would like. And I would immediately say 36, because I was mature enough to have enough you know, ability and wisdom to know what life was all about, and I was still in very good physical condition at age 36, and I've kind of deteriorated since then. But you might say 19 or 22, whatever you'd like. 
You can just stop the aging process right there when you're at the absolute apex of your mental and your physical abilities, and you can live on and on and on. I remember the way one old guy died. I thought it was so pleasant. He died in the middle of his last deer hunt in a wheelchair in the edge of a clearing with his rifle on his lap. I thought, what a way to go. You know, the old guy had enjoyed hunting all of his life, but he couldn't even walk anymore. And they got him out of the car in the collapsible wheelchair and wheeled him over to the edge of the thicket. And the other guys were driving around trying to chase some deer out of the woods. And he had a heart attack when he saw one, I guess, as the story went. And that was the end of him. But now, you know, I don't want to die, but I know that I've got to. So I contemplate that. How am I going to do it? And thankfully, it isn't up to me. I don't have that say-so. So I think, wouldn't it be nice, and I've told this so many times, I won't belabor it, to go the way my grandmother did, who was just reading the Bible and took the glasses off and put the glasses on her Bible, leaned back in a rocking chair on the Sabbath one day and went to sleep, sitting in her chair. And they came to shake her, to wake her up, to take her to church, and she was dead. Ninety-six. And she still had all of her own teeth and all of her own hair. And uh, well, she'd be becoming a little bit senile and thinking about her youth, but she was still enjoying life right up to the very last, age 96. So if God comes along and says, I'll tell you what I'm going to give you. I will give you three full lifetimes of a hundred years apiece at whatever age you would like to freeze yourself at. What a bargain. How would you like to have, and to know that you had an absolute guarantee, and all you would have to do is, let's say, right now, at this point in time in your life, go over here and register in East Texas State and take German. And you've got five years to learn how to preach in German. Read the German Bible, speak and read German, and if you do... You have three lifetimes. Now, I'm trying to bring it down to mundane terms. That's all you got to do. Just go study German. Anybody here who wouldn't say, boy, do I ever want to learn German and learn it quick? Now, I know Hollywood people that have gone through great sacrifice to try to get a movie contract. People have agreed that they would have plastic surgery. They've agreed to cap, to pull out all of their teeth and put in a plate. They've agreed to change their accent, change their hair color, lose weight, gain weight, build their bodies, reduce their bodies. You're familiar with that. There are people in the public eye who absolutely sacrifice enormous amounts of time to the detriment of their families, who destroy their families and their homes in order to sacrifice for that applause and what is called the glory of man. Now, I guess there's something glorious to an actor who strides out onto a platform and is greeted by a standing ovation there's something very heady about that. But you know, soon the applause has gone and the theater is empty and eventually the actor is old and kind of an old has-been and nobody really has any time for him anymore. Then the best he can do is to be on commercials, on TV, and eventually he won't even be doing that anymore and he'll be gone. Most of you aren't all of that enraptured with Clara Bow, but some of you may remember who she was. Uh, human glory, it lasts for such a short period of time. Some of the most exciting moments I remembered in my life were back in college during a basketball tournament on a hunt, piling in a Fanjet Falcon 39,000 feet over some of the beautiful ice cap of Greenland. Some of the great moments of life I can remember, I would like to go back and recapture, bombing down the ski slopes with my boys up above Zermatt in the shadow of the Matterhorn. I'd like to do that again someday. I'd like to go back over there someday. But then, you know, if I did what I would want, 
I'd want to go again. And if I did that, I'd want to go again. I'm so looking forward to the feast this year, to getting out to Lake Tahoe again. But I know that next year at this same time, I'll be saying the same thing. And even if I were 85, I'd be saying the same thing. And so I'm standing here agreeing with Solomon who says, the eye is not filled with seeing and the ear filled with hearing. And I have to admit, I have to agree with my God. You're right, Lord. I want eternal life. You're right, Lord. I don't want to die. I want to go on living forever. And when you even begin to tell me what that life is going to be like and what I'll be doing for all of this eternity, then it really gets exciting. Reading on through this little portion quickly, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs, absolutely on an equal plane, on the same level, you don't inherit something less than that which Christ has inherited. You inherit what He inherited. And you become a joint inheritor. And you possess exactly what Christ presently possesses. Now, how many times have you been to a really fabulous, I mean one of the all-time great magic shows? If you've ever seen this guy named David Copperfield in person, he has done some fabulous work on television you may have seen, even causing literally elephants to disappear. I have to confess, I don't have the faintest idea how they do some of that. I know it's lighting, and I know that it's collapsible boxes and screens and things like this. But you know, really, if they would put you in a lie detector test, you would say, he made the elephant disappear. You don't know how in the world he did it. I've always wanted to know how they do some of those tricks, but there are other things I would rather do. I could no longer run a mile, even in five minutes today, than I could. I would die trying. Somebody had to shoot me first. So I would love to do several things. I'd love to run a 3.37 mile. But even more than that, I'd like to climb to the top of Mount Everest or Mont Blanc. I've seen some places in some of those mountains that are so steep and precipitous and so high that I think if somebody could just drop me up there in a helicopter with my K2s on and let me just come straight on down, just bomb it all the way to the bottom. I'd love to do that, but I'd probably kill myself. So what I would like to do is to have skin that doesn't bleed, bones that don't break, eyes that don't, don't grow dim, a belly that does not gradually enlarge, skin that does not wrinkle, hair that does not fall out, ears that are not dulled with hearing. I would like to have a liver and a heart and lungs and all of my vital parts that function absolutely perfectly like a, a fine Rolex watch forever and ever and ever. I don't ever want to slow down. I don't ever want to have these aches and pains that hit me in the knees and hips keep me off of that tennis court or the racquetball court or the golf course, or especially those mountains out in Colorado. Now, I think I'm talking the same language that you are, and I think that all of us really want the same things. Now, he goes on to say in verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation, as it should read, waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, you know, so far I'm talking about what we get out of it. For a reason. It's very difficult to tell people how to give all of this to others. But now we come to what you might also contemplate you would like to have. If God Almighty were to come to you and to say, almost as if in a dream or a vision or through some revelation out of His Word, that the time has come for the church of God to be given 
spiritual gifts once again. The time has come to do a really great work to rock the nation and to rock the world back on its heels, to make it sit up and take notice, and to really do something so fabulous and so phenomenal that everyone will be convicted and convinced. And he's going to apportion the spiritual gifts enumerated in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Which one would you want? The gifts are listed. Would you want greater wisdom? You know, most of you would never choose that. Greater faith, greater patience. A lot of these gifts are listed. Gifts of the Spirit. I'll tell you what I think a lot of you would choose. You would want the gifts of healing because there's so much sickness. Because there are so many... Do you know that one out of six American babies born are born with congenital deformities? That there are something like 11 million deaf in this country? Do you know that vast percentages of little babies are being born today with congenital syphilis? Have you seen so many of the specials on television recently of the Special Olympics? of obstacle courses where the mongoloid kids and the ones that look like they're doing this weird dance that cannot manage to move their limbs the way a normal person does are kind of lurching along with this grin on their face. And don't you just nearly die inside and cry for these people? How much would you like to have the gift where you could walk into a hospital with all of these kids lying there with deformed limbs and people in wheelchairs and lying there crying in sickness, a little withered body of a person that is 17 in an iron lung living the life of a vegetable and just reach out and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Now, you know, that would be worth something if you could have a gift such as that. Well, Christ has that. What else has He got? Just think, there isn't anything you can come up with. I don't care whether you talk about fabulous trips and great beautiful things to see or trip into outer space or whatever you talk about. He's got it. He's already there. The Bible says that we're to be co-heirs and to inherit all things with Him. And that everything you go through now is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creature or creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to futility, meaning emptiness or vanity or futility, not willingly. No African asked to be an African. No mongoloid asked to be born in that shape. No child missing a limb asked for the privilege. No little baby starving to death in Chad or Naomi or Niger over there in the sub-Sahara of Africa or in Ethiopia or Eritrea asked to be there. The little boy whose picture I saw carrying his baby brother with tears streaking his dusty cheeks in Lebanon, in the city of Beirut, didn't ask to be captured in West Beirut, didn't ask to be encircled by the Israelis and held hostage virtually by the PLO. But he's over there and the bombs are crashing and the jets are screaming overhead and the mortars are going off and there they are and by their thousands they have died. All of this was made subject to futility, not willingly, but by reason of him, God, who has subjected the same in hope, because the creation or the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and prevails in pain together until now. And that's an exact picture of the world I read of in the newspaper every single day. 
And not only they, not only people who don't understand, not only people who are not in the church, not only people who don't really understand the gospel, who haven't been converted, have not been baptized, but also even those of us in the church who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we, sometimes we're the loudest complainers of all. Sometimes we feel more put upon than people in the world who are completely ignorant, deceived, and in darkness and don't even know. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. But what hope? That hope that is seen, you have it, you possess it, it's in your bank account, or you drive away in it, or you put it on your back, is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, our weaknesses, our lack of knowledge and comprehension. We know not how to pray, says the margin. I have to agree with that. People are searching. Some of you are searching to try to find the right language. I hope you listen very carefully to Mr. Dart's sermon, and if you want to hear it again, there's about three hours worth on tape, so you can hear it and hear it and hear it and understand the truth of God about the Hebrew names of God. There is an excellent article in this Bullinger's Companion Bible that lists every name, and a lot of you that think you know them, there are many, many names for God in the Hebrew and in the Greek that you do not know, have never read, and perhaps cannot even pronounce. I agree with anyone who says if it helps them to use a different language. I have prayed in Spanish from time to time because I can read a Spanish Bible. If it helps you, so do so. But don't try to force it on other people. Enough said on that. But the point is, I agree that oftentimes we do not even know how to pray as we ought. So the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings like a you know, we make noises as human beings. A lot of times when we're in pain, we make a noise. We don't just say, ouch. I mean, we print it that way, but you wouldn't do that automatically as a child until you're taught to. You might say anything. But groanings which cannot be uttered are yearnings which you cannot put into words. Desires toward God, feelings perhaps of disgust with yourself that really you can't put words to. But the point is he knows. He understands he is able to interpret those groanings and those feelings inside yourself. And he that searches the hearts, and that's the deep part of the mind, knows what is the mind of the spirit. You see, it's almost like the inner you, the spiritual you, that as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, is in conflict with the outer you, the physical you. And so he says there is a law there. There's a kind of a war going on. And he's speaking here of the want to, of the desire, of the way you'd like to be, not the way you really are, and that God understands that. He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good. A scripture that it's taken me years to really just say, I know that it's true. In May, June of 1978, I had turned my back momentarily on this scripture, not deliberately, but there was no way that I could believe that things were happening to me at that time were for the good. As the years have gone by, I see, yes, they were. Sure they were. Some shackles of bondage, some fear, 
Nobody can come along and shake his finger in my nose and make me go take to bed with gastrointestinal difficulty. There's nobody who can hurt me like that anymore. It's utterly impossible. Nobody can come to my little old home out there and say, get out. It's impossible. There's confidence. There's joy. There's liberty. There's a feeling of absolute security, a feeling of hope, a feeling of absolute knowledge. I know where I'm going. No questions anymore. It can't happen to me anymore. No, now we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. There's your question. And how can you not love the being that gave you the very emotion of love? How can you not love the being who gave you life? How many here created themselves? You put yourself together, shaped yourself with your own hands, did you? Decided what kind of eyesight and what kind of a mind and what kind of a body you were going to have, or didn't you just wake up and you're about five or six, and by the time you're seven or eight or nine or eleven, you're a little more aware all the time. But it took another teacher and it took parents to even educate you about who and what you were. People had to tell you, I am a human being, you know. They had to tell you that. They could have been lying to you and told you you're a gazelle. Put you loose in Africa, leaping over rocks, you wouldn't have known the difference. You had to be taught what you are, but you know, you didn't create yourself. You've been given life, a gift by your parents, and God the Father wants to give you His life, a gift by your gods or your godly parents, the God family of Christ the Son and God the Father. And it says, finally, for whom He did foreknow, and that is all of us or He wouldn't have called us, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Not conformed to each other's images, or conformed to some preacher's image, or some human leader's image, or to some image like so many yellow pencils in a box that you're enforced into or coerced into by some repressive Hitlerian dictatorship of some legal system or some church system, but conform to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's amazing to me the clarity, the simplicity of the plan of salvation and the truth of God of what human life is all about. What is man that you're mindful of him what the plan of redemption and of salvation is, what ultimately is going to be, that we are to inherit all things. And someday, instead of talking about how badly I'd love to see Colorado again, or how I'd like to see Zermatt and Interlaken and Switzerland, I'll say, I'm going to go out and investigate that 13th planet, the other side of Betelgeuse, that giant supernova in the middle of the belt of Orion. I'll be back in about a million years. And that'll be like he's taking a weekend off. Okay, have a good trip. Go with God. You know, unbelievable. I mean, I just I try to expand my consciousness into the macrocosm and think in terms like that. And I admit it boggles my mind. But I like to kind of speculate about it. When the Bible tells me that I can be a co-heir with Christ, and that if I overcome, I can inherit all things. I take it the Bible means exactly what it says.